Hello and welcome to Arts Tonight. This evening on Arts Tonight, Alice Lyons, curator of the forthcoming Poetry Now DLR Book Festival in Dunleary in Dublin, will discuss the notion of poetry as perpetual speech. The Poetry Now Festival in Dunleary marks its 20th anniversary this year and these are the voices of some of those taking part. There is a hawthorn on a hill, there is a hawthorn growing. It's set its roots against the wind, the worrying wind that's blowing. Its berries are red, its blossoms so white, I thought that it was snowing. A letter brings me to my teenage father, unpicks his bones and calls him back from his week of boarders' rations, his years of darkness and silence, to where he sits in the depths of winter in his cousin's kitchen and wolfs his Sunday lunch. What does he say? He lifts the fork and vanishes. Until now, how many winters later, and his father too lifted and returned to drive his hackney down the narrow roads, flat-capped and with his elbow out the window, so close I can reach my hand across. Kegu will live a scrive a dang heineker, or honither a deer. It's grivshi a fallum egan es og, good eager dunak skull on the lawn she's, egan rain om ilan no rimehe here in snakagadi. Well, o vaim no skira kariga and less skil. Near herring yeder kuha a banev. Is near leader riev leshen litriacht. Near humother is near hapother. Is near her gohin a nuder or hefein. Baskorn log gnosvrucht and doig. Is near yinader a mulin or a not even ashtahood as a donader. You are taken aback. Caught short. Off guard by that near quotidian attack. And he's here again with you, the one who never was a man, still a brother, still a son. Some of the poets there taking part in this year's Poetry Now Festival in Dunleary, which runs from March the 18th to the 22nd. American poets David Ferry and Maureen McLean and the Northumbrian poet Tom Pickard may be unfamiliar names, but they are poets who carry depths of experience and insight and who share a passion for language that stretches and celebrates the zest of poetic expression. Alice Lyons, poet and visual artist, has curated this year's programme and will give a talk on poetry as perpetual speech. I spoke to her about her ideas on poetry and language. She first told me about her own journey into the world of poetry. Well, I'm from New Jersey. That's where I was born. And I was um, the daughter of immigrants from Ireland. My mother's parents were from North Roscommon and Cork. um, Or actually, I should say Balahadrine, not North Roscommon, uh, Roscommon-Mayo border. But there was a a great silence about Ireland in my home, and I think this is something quite connected to my interest in language and and in speaking. And I grew up in the consciousness of my mother trying to reconnect to her her family in Ireland. Um, Her mother died when she was young, and um, she didn't know anything about her family here. So when I was a young girl, we came back here looking for her family. And so I was nine when I first came to Roscommon, and uh, my mother found her first cousin and her aunt 
and it was um, a transforming experience for me. I was a suburban New Jersey kid. My neighbors were all other Irish kids or, uh, you know, first-generation Irish, Polish, Italian immigrants. And we had that very characteristic American view of the world that we were the world. And so coming to Roscommon and seeing my cousins on a small farm with a very large family um, really transformed me and shattered that illusion that the world was the USA. Did it also open up an alertness to the sound of language and that mm-hmm. vast difference between uh, the English of your life in New Jersey mm-hmm. and the language of your relations mm-hmm. in the home place in Roscommon? Yeah, I mean, the, the language in Roscommon, to me, there was vitality in the speech. There was an incredible warmth and um, there was the only way I can describe it is that there was life in speech. And at home in in the suburbs in New Jersey, everything seemed sanded. The corners were sanded off the language. My mother was always trying to get us to say things like, don't say deli and ave. It's delicatessen and avenue. Because we were upwardly mobile. We were from a poor neighborhood in Patterson. And she wanted us to improve ourselves. And therefore, our language had to be improved. You know, and I'm putting quotation marks around that word. And so coming to Ireland was a, an amazing experience for me in, in kind of finding octane in language. And then finding the octane of, of poetry. Mm-hmm. Uh, did some of that come from uh, not only listening to the world around you, but f- from, from school and an encounter with, with poetry early on through, through school texts? No, I don't remember reading any poetry in school um, as a young person. And I think it seems to me my immediate, my immediate answer is it, it was the way that I thought analogically rather than logically and the way that poetry connects things through images and not through explanatory language is to me natural. And when I became, when I was a college student and first read, I remember the first poem that really made an impression on me was Hopkins, Gerard Manley Hopkins, um, God's Grandeur. Um, and that kind of rhythm in language just, it felt like I came home. And rhythm in language is something, of course, that, that fascinates you. Mm-hmm. And But you, your own poetry also has a very, very strong visual aspect. Mm-hmm. I mean, many people uh, may remember some of your work from the DOC, the Art Centre in, in Carrick and Shannon, uh, where you use you use the visual very, very effectively in, in creating a, a visual poetry that maybe challenges the notion as well of of only one language, in this case English, as the carrier of, of poetry. Cause I, and I'm very interested in that. You know, Leonardo da Vinci talked about poetry and painting, this link, you know, and, and poetry as a, as a painting that, that isn't finished and painting as a poem that might yet be done, something like that. And I, I'm really interested in, in how you see poetry in that way. <laughs> yeah, it's funny. It's, it, it's somewhat perverse, but I really do think that certain things that aren't language are poems. So there's certain films that to me are, and, and I think I think new media is really, is carrying us into this world where visual things have a way of finding a translation that is, that is po- poetic. And I'm really interested in this idea of how can poems be translated to things like film and video? And, and how can language, how can speech find an equivalent that's visual? And this is a a question I'm really, really interested in. 
Could you describe for me some of, of that work uh, that people may remember from from the dock in, in Carrick and Shannon? Um, well, the one that comes to mind immediately is a poem about John McGahern. I lived for 15 years in Coot Hall, right across from the barracks where McGahern spent the, the second part of his childhood. And um, I never knew, knew the man, but um, I lived among so many people who did and were talking about him because it was when That They May Face the Rising Sun was published and then memoir. And um, the poem that I wrote was a collection of things that I heard people say about McGahern. And um, it, as it happened, he, he died um, a month before I was to install the, the poem on the walls and the staircase of the dock. And so there was a moment when I got the text from a friend and the, the text just read, McGahern's dead. And I was in the lobby of the dock and I said it to um, a colleague who worked there and she just said, oh, I never met him, but he was a lovely man. <laughs> and I just loved that. And so that went up on the wall. And there were so many things like that. Uh, I was reading the memoir when I went to the dentist, and the dentist said to me, "Ah, what are you reading that stuff? That it's that depressing so and so, you know." And and just you know, people always had something to say about McGahern, and so the poem just became, and it, it went down the walls and the staircase of the dock. It just became this like acoustic space, visual and acoustic space of what people said about this writer. And, and I loved the fact, too, that people in this community were talking about a writer and what he re they read him. It wasn't a text that they had to study in school. They read it because they wanted to, they needed to. Coming back to live in the west of Ireland, in Roscommon, Sligo, the hinterlands of, of Leitrim, later on in life, um, mm. did that also help to feed your own poetic imagination and, and your work? And then an interest in, in language and how we how we use and carry language and maybe the seeds of memory and poetry within it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I moved here in my early 30s, really on a gut instinct that this is where this was material for my work, and that it would that I and my work would flourish here. That's why I came. And, and it has been so full for me. I am so fascinated by the way language works here, by the way people people speak, you know, the whole thing that McGahern was interested in, the way that people say so many words and they're they're not saying at all what they really mean. That kind of thing too. But also, um, you know, a friend who used to visit from Shambo, an American friend, he would often say, he would watch people who've grown up here speak and he would say, Alice, it's like when they throw me the ball, I don't know how to throw it back. And I watch them just back and forth throwing the ball. And so there's this fluency that to me is, uh, there's vitality in it. There's some, sort of, there, there's some sort of restoration in it for me. And I think that has to do with a, a kind of silence that I grew up with and a kind of um, awkwardness and disfluency with speech that took over the suburbs in the 60s when I was growing up. The currents, the, the lakes, the rivers of language and poetry that you, that you talk about. Um, you are this year steering the boat of poetry now um, and uh, 20 years of quite a remarkable festival that has brought some of the best of international and Irish poetry to the public. Um, and I know in, in looking 
to the people who would take part this year as well. You were you were very much looking out. And I, something that struck me is it, it often seems like there are several worlds of poetry. And in Ireland, it strikes me. It seems to me that we're sometimes quite insular and perhaps we don't look out enough even to write contemporary writers of poetry in North America, in the USA, of whom there are many wonderful poets and a, a number of them are coming here this year and we'll talk about them. But um, Elizabeth Bishop, um, great poet and uh, somebody who I think has been very important for you in your own poetic journey and how you hear and look at language. True. Um, Bishop was one of the first writers that I, I read um, when I started reading poetry. And in a way, um, I almost stopped writing poetry when I started to read her because I felt like everything I wanted to say and how it was said, she had done. And there wasn't anything more to do. <laughs> um, but I just love, I mean, in my own, there's a reticence of emotion. There's a reticence, and yet there's such a fullness of emotion in Bishop. And, and also there's the visual aspect of her. She was, um, you know, obsessed with visual detail and description, uh, almost annoyingly so sometimes. Um, you know, now she's she's one of the great ones, and, and it's recognized. When, when I first encountered her in the, I guess it was late 70s, she was kind of, she was pretty important, but she wasn't as important as Lowell and some of her other contemporaries. And I think luckily that, that you know, that's been righted. I want to, want to listen to, to an extract from one of her great poems, a long poem, uh, At the Fish Houses. Uh, before we do that, though, before we listen to it, tell me a little bit ab- about this extraordinary poem and again how it, how it carries layers of uh, language and meaning and, and potentialities. I think the poem at the fish houses, I mean, first, maybe a little bit of detail about Bishop herself. So Elizabeth Bishop was born in Nova Scotia. Her father died when she was very young, when she was an infant, and her mother soon was also um, incapacitated with mental illness when she was young. So she was early an orphan um, and was raised by her grandparents in Nova Scotia. Um, And this poem is set on the docks where the cod fishermen are bringing the boats in. And it's an extraordinary poem. I think it's one of, there are lines in this poem at the end, which we'll hear her read, that are some of the most uh, enigmatic and oblique words that she ever wrote. And it's one of the poems that I think people return to again and again. It's in two sections, and in the first section, it's pure bishop description of these boats, the fishermen, and especially these beautiful iridescent fish scales, which cover everyone. They're almost like these little glistening um, metals that attach to everything in the beginning of the poem. And she, she focuses on that, again, quite obsessively. It's almost like this, um, this need to, to be brought out of herself and into the visual. But then the poem takes a turn in the second section, and the, the poet looks away from the land and she looks out towards the water. And this is the, this is the reason that I was interested in this poem because I think this poem starts to talk in the way that she's looking at the water and the ocean about language in a way that I'm really interested in. And I'll, I'll talk about this in this um, talk that I'm going to give in at Poetry Now about how language is this gigantic ocean that we're dropped into when we're babies. We, you know, we just land in this thing and we have to try to swim, but we arrive as outsiders. 
we're hardwired to learn, but we, we don't speak anything. And we go through this profound and very ordinary experience of learning to speak. And I think that poetry is very hardwired into this experience. And poetry remembers the fact that we are both strangers and familiars to language. Elizabeth Bishop there reading at the Fisheries from the Poetry Archives reading series. Alice Lyons, a remarkable reading and a remarkable poem, that The Melancholy Stains of Memory and that amazing image of singing Baptist hymns to this solitary seal. And it, it's a great piece. It's a wonderful poem and a very um, flat reading, you know, like that those flat vowels that she has and very um, matter-of-factness in her voice, which is so in opposition to the the extraordinary language and the way she finds this kind of demotic surfing um, rhythm of, you know, cold, dark, deep, absolutely clear, the North Atlantic Ocean. You know, she says, she compares this element, bearable to no mortal, to knowledge. But I also think that it's it's very much comparable to language. And to this idea that, um, you know, language is, is out there and so much of it is dark and unknowable. And, and there, are, there are strangers out there who are in the same element as us, seals in her poem, but who, who we can't communicate with. We, we can't speak the same language. And I suppose in a way it also taps into this idea of the, the elseness of poetic language, you know, and, and I know Kieran Carson, his new collection of poems uh, from elsewhere almost mm. hints at that, doesn't it? You know, that yeah. where does poetry come from and yeah. how do we how do we tap into it? And, yeah. and he often seems to summon it, you know, he, with a tune on, he does. on the whistle. Yes, at the beginning of a, of a poetry reading, he'll fire up the tin whistle and invoke the ashling space, the vision space of poetry. And I think what we think of as language is often this kind of discourse of reason of the you know the way we're talking now the the explanatory the this is how it works and you know first then therefore after that you know this kind of subordinating logic that we have to to discourse and in our world because we're so ruled by commerce and by technology this language is what we think of as language as real and to me I think of that as this really strong Gulf Stream churning in this larger ocean of language. And poetry includes all of that. It includes that Gulf Stream, and it, it often, many poets will write in that kind of discourse, but it also points to this vast, unlit, cold, dark, absolutely clear element that Bishop is writing about that has an elsewhere, that's not lit by the light of rationality and an inquiry but is, is dark and dangerous, too. And often wonderful. I mean, something you've written in the realm of poetry, poems are the legitimate language. That's very interesting as well, because mm-hmm. it's speaking in opposition to the inevitability of, of the rational or the seeming mm-hmm. seemingly rational. You've also said that uh, you think that rational language is, is exhausted. I do. I think that rationality and ration, rational language is exhausted. And I think this is one of the things we see in people's interest in, in fiction and, and in new approaches that, that people, that writers are, are taking in fiction. This fantastically inventive uh, language that Emer McBride has found to write an, a very straight narrative 
is an example of that. And, I'm, and I think people have been refreshed by that kind of thing. And I think that we are searching for refreshment and, and reinvigoration, reinvention in language. And, and poetry is a part of that. And as somebody who's been doing that for a long time is, is one of the remarkable poets reading at this year's Poetry Now Festival, yeah. uh, the American poet David Ferry. Yeah. Um, in his, what, 91. And writing these amazing poems recently of grief and loss yes. and magnificent translations is his latest collection, Bewilderment, is, is a great book. It's, it's a fantastic book. Uh, it's remarkable. I really, I'm so delighted that David Ferry is coming from Boston. Um, he's he's also from New Jersey, from East Orange, New Jersey. Um, but he has spent his whole life uh, translating. He's translated Horace, Virgil. He's translated Gilgamesh, the ancient Sumerian epic. And he is someone who has this long view of the history of the Western canon of literature. But he also has this incredible panoramic vision, I think, of language. And this awareness that that Bishop, I think, underscores too, of being in language and also outside of language. Um, He was married, um, had a very long and happy marriage to the writer and critic, literary critic Anne Ferry. And Anne died in the last um, years. And Ferry writes, I think, with this incredibly unsentimental, undefended, bewildered way about loss, with no kind of pat answers and yet no cynicism as well. And one of the things he writes about the loss is, I have been so dislanguaged by what happened. That's an incredible line. I think there's so much in that. And in his poetry, and we'll hear him read a poem called The Birds, in which you get the sense he's looking at the world through the other end of a telescope, you know, and he's really, he's just seeing this enormous timeline. It's not exactly mine. David Ferry there reading uh, the poetry archives in Boston University. Alice Lyons, that phrase, um, not exactly mine, Mm -hmm. I think goes to the heart of so much that he carries. It it does, and it, it's like this this awareness that he is, and I think all of, all of us have this relationship to language that it's ours, we become native speakers of it, and yet in our finite lives, and he, he speaks, he, he repeats that word finite, we lose language, we lose ourselves and our relationship to it, and yet it continues. And I think he has that perspective of the, you know, the long game, the long march of language through time that transcends our, as he says, our finite, tiny lives in the perspective of it. I I love the story of Stendhal, the 19th century French writer in Florence, who he he fainted um, at the enormity of the history of Italian art. He was just completely overwhelmed. And I completely relate to this when I'm in museums. I I get dizzy sometimes with the um, the stretch of time that, that these places can speak to. And I think Ferry has a kind of literary Stendhal syndrome here. It's just, it's dizzying when he sees the smallness of himself and I think ourselves within that long, long perspective. And I suppose, again, this is something poetry can do to really encapsulate something of the enormity of of time and creativity in 
in something very, very small mm-hmm. and, and precise. And somebody I think of in relation to that is, uh, is the Russian poet Joseph Brodsky. And I remember you in the past talking about uh, a marvellous film of his, about his life, A Room and a Half, which seems to hold all the impulses of language and place and people of Russia uh, and history. And that, again, links to film and poetry. And I know that one of the things you're doing as well this year at Poetry Now is is bringing in film. Yeah, I am. Um, one of the poets, Tom Pickard from Newcastle, we're going to screen a film that Tom directed in 1991 about the Birmingham poet Roy Fisher, a poet who isn't as well known as he should be. And I think if there were an underlying theme to some of the the selections I've made for this festival, it is not as well known as they should be, I think, for many of the people who are coming. Um, and I hope, I hope that um, the festival gets to balance that right a little bit. But yeah, in film, there's a a way that that the voice of poems and the the sounds of poems and the rhythm of them can can come alive, and you see this very much in in Pickard's film about Roy Fisher, which is called Birmingham is what I think with, um, which is a line from Fisher because he lived in Birmingham and his poems are all about that place, but there the film has incredible readings of Fisher um, delivering his poems. They're wonderful, wonderful readings, and also the visuals. The streets, the people, the scenes, the um, rhythms of speech there that inspired Fisher are all in the poem too, or in the film, uh, you know, no pun intended or no mistake intended there. And Pickard is a photographer and filmmaker as well. And that's one of the things, I mean, Elizabeth Bishop was a painter too, you know, and we, we kind of pigeonhole people into these creative discipline boxes that Roy Fisher was a jazz pianist. So many People do more than one thing in their art. And, um, and so that's something I'm trying to, to show in, in screening the Pickard film and also uh, a number of other poetry films. Pickard is a poet I wasn't familiar with at all. I know you first heard him read in Newcastle and I think were really taken by his presence and most especially by his work. I, I, I was bowled over. It was a, a program in Newcastle I saw a few years ago and I didn't know that Pickard was on on the program. I'd heard of him a little bit, mostly in relation to Basil Bunting. He Pickard um, is credited with getting Bunting to write again after Bunting came back to England, um, before he wrote Brig Flats. And um, when he came out to read, it was just electrifying. He has unbridled, unfettered emotion. And there's lots of rage in him and in his poems, as well as great love and tenderness and musicality. And all of this was just present in his voice and his delivery. What he's written, and Carcanet has just come out with a, a collected, it's called Hoyut, I think that's a Geordie term, called uh, Collected Poems and Songs by Pickard. And he's also written a book that um, was nominated for, I think, a National Book Critics Circle Award in the U.S. called Ballad of Jamie Allen, which is a collage poem that incorporates um, court depositions and all, all kinds of historical documents about Jamie Allen, who was an 18th century Northumbrian piper who was commissioned by dukes and earls to play the music for them. And he was also a real rogue, wild man uh, on the borders. And he died in Durham jail, um, having been ser- serving a life sentence for stealing a horse. And so Pickard writes an amazing book about him. And there's lots of ballads 
in the book. Lot, lot, lot of song, lot of in in Pickard's work, very, very strong rhythm and an attention to the musical quality of language. And so this poem we'll hear is called Hawthorne, and it's from Ballad of Jamie Allen by Tom Pickard. Tom Pickard there reading his poem Hawthorne from the Holloway series of recordings in Berkeley. And as I as Tom Pickard, of course, reading at the Poetry Now Festival. And that poem, there's this incredible sense of timelessness in it. It, it could be 18th century, it could be 17th century. Nature, rhythm, the weather, love, grief. I and mean, it's, it's, it's an astonishing piece of, of poetry that carries, a, a, carries, seems to carry worlds with it. Yeah. And, and there's so much in the rhythm of the language and the way, the way that he, he reads it. And it, you know, it's ballad in form, but it makes you think, it makes me think of the nursery of children's, of children's rhymes and rhythms. And it, it carries me back again to that, that bishop, um, that idea of um, the seal in, in the sea, and she sings a hymn to the seal. And it's like, Okay, the seal isn't going to understand the words of a mighty fortress is our God, but a seal might respond to rhythm and cadence and tone and all of those things that you hear so beautifully carried in in Pickard's voice. And so it's this idea that that poetry has all those things that are they're they're part of our our bodies, you know, we're rhythmic breathers and lovers and movers, you know, and, and that's a part of language. And you, I, I think um, people who hear Pickard read will, will hear that and see that in his voice in the way that the, the structures of the language bridles the emotion that's so, you know, inflamed really in, in the words. It feels almost like a kind of lullaby for, for yes. us, you know, for life. Yeah. And 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 for love across yes. across time, it's extraordinary. And it, it it was again. It reminds you that poetry has an almost physical quality that mm-hmm. within the body of a poem, there's something that's almost tactile. You know, when you yeah. hear something like that, you realise yeah. that it it actually affects your own body. Yes, yeah, and that's something that's so. It's almost like we we don't feel comfortable. We don't have a language yet for talking about that physical aspect of 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 words, really. And I think um, I often think about words as being furry, that like words have these coats on them that have a nap and a texture. And, and as they go through the world, through our experience, all this stuff gets tangled up in the nap and the, the texture of the fur of words. And so when, when I hear certain words, like when I even hear David Ferry say song with that real uh, August Kleinzoller calls them chewy New Jersey vowels. You know, that's that's the sound of my my home place. Just as you know, you Vincent would hear some kind of Leitrim, you know, sound, and it just it it rings in a very very deep place in a person. And and I think um, poetry speaks to this. And um, Liz Berry, who is also coming to read, and um, who read a few weeks ago in Cork, and who people were talking about uh, so much afterwards that her reading was so um, effective. So Liz Berry is um, from the Black Country, which is a place that I wasn't familiar with, an area of the West Midlands in England. So this is where she grew up. And um, she has just published her first collection called Black Country, and it won the Forward Prize for Best First Collection. 
and Barry often writes in the speech of that place. And I'm, I'm, I'm calling it speech or a variety of English rather than calling it a dialect because a dialect, that word just has such a negative connotation. And it again, it kind of makes it sound like this language is illegitimate somehow and that there's this other legitimate language. And, and Barry has a poem that we'll hear called Sea of Talk that's very much about this um, language of a particular kind of uh, language that has an incredible emotional resonance for her that she and w- was launched into um, by her father. This poem is dedicated to her father's Sea of Talk. Um, and it's written in that that language from the black country region. I remember somebody saying that with her language, you could almost uh, touch the texture of the coal in her consonants. And I thought it was sort of such a great description. But I, in that that collection, black country had to be one of the one of the strongest new first collections in many, many years. And I think one of the one of the best collections of poems to be published last year. But and out of this, I want to talk a little bit about uh, textures of language in, in Ireland and what words contain and of course everything here as well underlain shadowed by Irish by mm. this an undertow that we, we sometimes forget and I suppose here in her poems we hear the language of of the black country yeah Liz Berry there reading her poem Sea of Talk Alice shape shifting as jellyfish in the dark, and it, 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 it's you feel it, and it, and it comes back again to the ocean and and those images. But there's also within that the, the boat pushed off, um, the boat of words pushed off from the jetty into the sea of talk, um, extraordinary images. But in the, the, she seems to carry so much, and I'm reminded somehow in her work of coming across a reference that depressed me deeply recently too. Uh, how I think it was the Chambers Dictionary. Uh, for young people had left out words like bluebell and acorn uh, to replace them with the internet and uh, the other kind of blackberry. Uh, so the, <laughs> yeah. the blackberry is plucked out uh, yeah. from nature and put yeah. back in as as the rational, supposedly. Yeah. Uh, and I mean that the potential for loss yeah. within that is is enormous. Yeah, this is this is very dangerous and and and, and I think Barry's work, that collection speaks directly to this. And I think, you know, I was thinking about it as, as um, I heard her reading and it's, it's tricky territory because it can fall into gimmick, gimmickry and, and a patronizing. Um, and I think we know this very much here in, in Ireland. Um, but, but Barry is managing so far to really adhere to the emo- emotional heft of the speech and the, the way that I think She's almost coming back to it after having given it up. You know, I, I don't know the story, but there, there's the sense that there's a return because there is such emotional power um, in that original language, in the language of, of childhood. And it's giving, it's that octane, you know, it's giving the poems real emotional texture and you can't escape it when you hear it, when you when you see her read or, or read the words on a page, you can't you can't escape it. You know, it's it's real. You know, it's speaking to that the way that's you know she says la- that last summer before before school robbed language from my mouth and parceled it up in endless ladybird books. It's that same kind of thing uh, as you're you're talking about there in that Robert McFarlane. Um, 
article about the, the dictionary, these words in the dictionary, that, that richness gets lost, get, gets sanded down. Yeah. I, I suppose, again, we, we were obviously deeply aware of it in Ireland with the profound loss for so many people of, of the Irish language, that distancing from it. And I, I wonder, when you f- first came here, mm-hmm. were you aware of that duality, you know, of, of, of another language often hovering beneath the English that you were hearing in Ireland? Yeah, I, I was. I'm interested in sociolinguistics, and so I would I would hear those things like I'm just after dinner and those kinds of direct translations from the grammar of Irish, and they fascinated me. I mean, I think Nuala Nigonal is the poet um, who, who showed me as a non-Irish speaker the way into the Irish language um, and, and gave me a welcome. There's an irony to it because she, she doesn't translate her own poems normally. That she leaves it to someone else. But I think it was the fact that she is so articulate about the, the difference for her between Irish and English and what it means to speak both. And I think that that's abroad in the country for many, many people. It, it, you can't translate it, what that love of the Irish is for certain people here. And I was interested, actually, in this, the parallel between Liz Berry's Sea of Talk and Nuala Nigonal, her great poem, um, Pharaoh's Daughter, where she, she says, I place my hope on the water in this little boat of the language, the way a body might put an infant in a basket of intertwined iris leaves. Um, That's in Paul Muldoon's English translation, which is what's available to me. But it's similar to Liz Berry in that imagery of launching this very fragile thing into this larger, dangerous sea. And yet there's a, a hope contained within the launch as well of the poem out into the world. It has been very kindly translated by Paul Muldoon as the language issue. I place my hope on the water in this little boat of the language. The way a body might put an infant in a basket of intertwined iris leaves. Its underside proofed with bitumen and pitch. Then set the whole thing down amidst the sedge and bulrushes by the edge of a river only to have it borne hither and thither, not knowing where it might end up, in the lap, perhaps, of some pharaoh's daughter. Hesht Matangan. Kurim Mavokas are snob in modin tangan, famari lakfon the anon igliavon, a vachfitta fuerta the yeloga fellastrum, because bitumen is pick of a kimmelton and a hoin. And some they lag a she, semasling yalkuk, as quiggle the man she, lathayeth nahawan. Fiachand, natherish, kadurigan strohe. Fiachand, dalavish, and vorig inin, orin. Nulli Gonal there reading her poem Pharaoh's Daughter in her own original uh, Irish version and English version translation by Paul Muldoon. Anna Slides, talking about hope in the midst of, of this ocean of change. Um, and I suppose one should always be aware as well of, of the potential dangers around uh, poetry and the commercialization, perhaps of, of, of poetry and the measuring of it by success and how much sells or what becomes popular or whatever. Mm-hmm. And, and it is sometimes it feels to me like it is this 
well, I was going to say a protected species, but maybe a species that needs, on the one hand, a certain protection, and on the other, a real nurturing and and putting out there, so that we're we're not afraid. I mean, you've talked about how sometimes poets in public readings talk, give a longer introduction uh, to the poem than the text of the poem itself, yeah. and and how it doesn't always need explication if we're if we have the openness to just accept that this is bringing you on another yeah. journey. Sure, there's there might be words that need explanation or a little bit of context, but I don't think I'm not a fan of the need for this rational, ex, you know, this long explanation of telling us what the poem is about and and how it came about and so on. And I think we audiences we're, we're open and prepared to having the the poem, the language of the poem, being the legitimate language of the poetry reading and of, and of being allowed to have the poem for ourselves without a bunch of precautions and instructions before we're allowed to have it, you know. And I think that, that idea of um, launching these fragile little boats of poems out into the world, and, and I do think that there, there's hope within that, that act of launching, but there's also um, the potential for danger. I mean, these aren't in in Nulanigonal and in Liz Berry's um, constructions. These are fragile little boats. They're not these gigantic kind of tankers cruising through uh, the main. And there is the um, there, there's a lot of danger out there in the world for for poetry. And as you say, the marketplace. You know, if the marketplace is going to measure success of poetry, then poetry's completely gone it's lost um, and we see this in you know in bookshops and the slim volumes from any kind of small press disappearing from the shelves I love Liz Berry has a line where she says um, oysters clemming their lips upon pearls in the muck about you know these these oysters and it it reminded me of a story my father used to tell about um, traveling from New Jersey into New York through Grand Central Station in the 40s where he he worked in a typewriter ribbon factory in lower Manhattan and on his way to work he'd stop at the oyster bar in Grand Central Station and he'd get a sandwich which was the poor man's sandwich an oyster sandwich and things that we value change. So in those days, in the 40s, oysters were a dime a dozen, literally, and now they're a delicacy. I mean, my point is that what we value changes. And the fact that poetry books aren't selling, and uh, poets are not, uh, you know, the best remunerated people in the world, you know, does this really mean something about their value? Steering the boat of of a festival. I presume that has been immensely satisfying. And I'm interested as well in, in approaching people like David Ferry to come to Ireland or Boy McLean, who's giving the, the keynote address, another great American poet. I mean, are they interested in the idea of, of Ireland? Does it still hold a, a certain beacon as, as a place that is attractive to poets? It's the easiest job in the world to invite poets to come to Ireland to read. They are. They're, they're interested that David Ferry has been here before, as has Maureen McLean in other capacities. They haven't been to poetry now, um, but they know that the audience here is really interested in poetry, and they have that sense that that l- literature is alive and well here, and they're they're happy to come. <laughs> and I suppose that is something a cause, a certain cause for for celebration. Uh, Alice yeah. Lyons, thanks so much. Thank you. 
Alice Lyons, curator or inspirational force behind the programme for this year's Poetry Now Festival as part of the Mountains to See DLR Book Festival in Dunleary, which runs from the 18th to the 22nd of March. Next week, Exile, Identity and Cultural Change, the Influences and Effects of Emigration and the Migrants' Experience of the New Worlds of Home. Just inside the front door of my house in Montreal is a painting my son did for me. It is one of many around the house, studies of figures done from live models and landscapes from Morocco and Ireland. But this one he worked from an old photograph. It looks back to a time about 30 years ago. I am in the centre, a large figure sitting in a small boat, rowing. In the foreground are two young boys wearing Montreal Expo's baseball caps, himself and his young brother, one on either side of me, looking off in different directions. That is how it was on that day, I like to think. That is how the camera captured it. And it was no lack of talent that left the faces indistinct, for it is the bodies themselves and their relationships to each other inside the frame that is the essence of the picture. Dennis Sampson on his memoir Migrant Heart on next week's Arts Tonight at 10. Join me then. Good night. Arts Tonight was presented by Vincent Woods and produced by Cleon in the Onloon.